Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Valuable resource, a foundation of faith for the next generation. Amen. And we're grateful for that ministry. Amen. I want to ask you to open up your Bible with me this morning to Luke. Hallelujah. Luke chapter 17, if you join me there. Amen. Who's got the victory this morning? Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Luke chapter 17, as we look together into the Word of God, I want to take the opportunity today to relate to you some some truth from the Word of God that is easy for us to apply in our daily lives. My goal as a preacher, every time I step behind this pulpit, is I don't want to just uh, give you a theological truth that you put in your pocket and forget about in 12 hours. My goal is to give each and every one of us, including myself, a biblical point of view that can adjust the way that we live and give us tools and equip us for the life that we have of living for God. Uh, Maybe you can remember back if you you are a a person who aims to please, who wants to make a difference in life. Maybe you can relate to the phrase that maybe you could have heard from a parent or a coach or a teacher. When you've messed up and when you've made mistakes, I know none of y'all have ever messed up or made mistakes, but if you could imagine a theoretical world where that happened, And a coach or a parent or a teacher or a trainer came to you and said these words, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Did you ever get that one? Didn't it feel like a a claw hammer right between your eyes? Because it is a, uh, a phrase from someone who truly cares, who wants the best from you, and you, many times when you messed up, when you did something stupid, uh, you want people to be angry at you, you want some retribution, but instead of being angry, you get the disappointment. Well, I've come this morning to share with you some disappointment, and I'd like to have your attention for a few moments. This is uh, something that's been happening in our culture and some piece of news that I was disappointed in in the last couple of weeks, and it has to do with your favorite fast food fried chicken chain, Chick-fil-A. 
Now, to help you understand my disappointment, I have to give you a little bit of context before we get to the Word of God. Chick-fil-A is a fast food company that just happens to have the most amazing fried chicken sandwiches that have ever been created. It is a company that, since its foundation, has been based on Christian values. Truett Cathy, the one who started Chick-fil-A, he started out building his company with Christian values, biblical values. And most evident is that if you want a Chick-fil-A sandwich today after church, you're not going to be able to get one. Because here's a company that honors the Sabbath day. In fact, I have even preached entire sermons about honoring the Sabbath day using Chick-fil-A as an example of how God can bless because of a financial decision to be closed on Sundays. And uh, there's people here who could learn that lesson. When you honor the Sabbath, God is able to bless in other areas of your life. If you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A, you know that they even play Christian uh, music over their loudspeakers. In 2012, just seven short years ago, Dan Cathy, who's the son of Truett Cathy, who started the company, he was in an interview where uh, the company had been gaining some flack for supporting and giving to charities that supported biblical family and, and traditional uh, marriage and so forth. And this was the statement in 2012 that, that got a lot of press. I want you to stick with me for just a few moments. I want you to listen to this statement and tell me whether or not you agree with it, okay? We are supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We operate as a family business. Our restaurants are typically led by families. Some are single. We want to do anything we possibly can to strengthen family, and we are very much committed to that. Now, when you heard that statement, did you hear fireworks? Did you hear something that was crazy and off the wall? Well, there are a lot of people who heard that statement and said, Uh, We hate Chick-fil-A because of that. There's a lot of people in our culture, uh, the LBGT alphabet soup crusaders in our nation, turn their anger against the fast food chicken company because of that statement from their owner. And they started getting even more uh, hatred. There was an incident where a a crazy left-wing radical bought Chick-fil-A sandwiches and put them in a backpack and uh, stormed the doors of one of the organizations that Chick-fil-A supports with a gun. He killed a guy in that situation. It was a terrorist activity. It was was crazy. And his plan was to take those Chick-fil-A sandwiches and rub them in the faces of those people who are simply, simply trying to support the biblical family. So all of this happened back in 2012. And when the owner of Chick-fil-A made that statement and the world and the forces of hell came against him, there was a political candidate at the time, 2012, in the middle of political season where there's a presidential election happening. And Governor Mike Huckabee makes an announcement. Maybe you remember this. He says, "If uh, if you are 
somebody who agrees with the statement of the owner of Chick-fil-A, here's what I'll encourage you to do. Let's everybody take a day and let's go down to Chick-fil-A and show them that we support them by buying some chicken sandwiches. And that's what happened. It was August 1st of 2012. And the response that was garnered on that day was beyond what anybody could imagine. The lines were around the buildings. The cars for the drive through were lined up all the way down the block. They said it was their record-setting day of sales from before or since. They've never seen such a response. As when they stood up for the family and God's people came and stood up for them. All of that happened in 2012. And for this last seven years, they have seen an incredible time. In 2012, Chick-fil-A was number 10 on the list of fast food chains. Number 10. Since then, they've gotten bigger than KFC, Pizza Hut, Dunkin' Donuts, Taco Bell, Burger King, and Wendy's. And as of this year, they just overtook Starbucks as the number three fast food chain in America. The number three. As of 2019, and I believe that that's not an accident. There is a reason why in from 2012 to 2019, they have more than quadrupled their annual sales numbers. And remember, on six days a week. Not seven days a week, like the rest of them. They're the number three fast food chain in the United States. And it's because I believe that there are people like me that when that happened in 2012, I said, I'm going to go out of my way to eat chicken sandwiches as often as I can because I am thankful for a company that stands up for what's right. And if, uh, if I was thirsty, I wouldn't go to 7-Eleven. I would go to Chick-fil-A and get a Coke Zero with light ice. And if I was hungry and I had the choice between going to Taco Bell or going to Chick-fil-A, which was a mile out of my way, I would go a mile out of my way to get the Chick-fil-A. Because of this stand that the company made, that the founder of that company made, and by the way, I like their chicken. But it was just a couple of weeks ago that there was an announcement that came out from Chick-fil-A headquarters. They had a contract with a couple of organizations that they are going to end and that they are going to stop giving to, which includes foundations like the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, the FCA. These are two biblical-based organizations, but they got heat for supporting them because they also have a biblical traditional view of marriage and all the LGBTQ alphabet soup group out there hates the fact that Chick-fil-A gives money to those organizations. And so they made the announcement that they're not going to give money to them anymore. And they're going to be donating to other, don, uh, other organizations that are, le- that are more politically correct. And for those of us who have been supporting Chick-fil-A like this for the last seven years, I'm disappointed. 
Mike Huckabee came out with a statement, the same one who initiated all this support, and he said, he said, uh, Chick-fil-A today betrayed loyal customers for money. I regret believing that they would stay true to the convictions of their founder, Truett Cathy. Sad. Charles Payne, a commentator, said that the, the news from Chick-fil-A is bewildering. I had to look it up on several sources before I could believe it. Christians fought for the company against wave after wave of criticism. The Salvation Army helps everyone. Dan Crenshaw, uh, a, a hero congressman from the nation of Texas, said, Congrats to the woke scold who finally bullied Chick-fil-A into stopping donations to the Salvation Army and their bigoted, bigoted history of helping the poor and homeless. Real big accomplishment for progressives. Hope you're happy. And the truth is that they weren't happy. The lesson that we can learn is that when you give in to convictions, it's never going to satisfy your critics because GLAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, also made a statement after this big announcement. And they said if Chick-fil-A is serious about their pledge to stop holding hands with divisive anti-LGBTQ activists, then further transparency is needed regarding their ties to organizations like Focus on the Family, those evil people, Listen, which exist purely to harm LGBTQ people and families. Do you agree with that statement that focus on the family exists purely to harm LGBTQ people and families? In addition to refraining from financially supporting these organizations, Chick-fil-A still lacks policies to ensure safe workplaces for LGBTQ employees and should unequivocally speak out against the anti-LGBTQ reputation that their brand represents. All of that to say this. What do we do when we're disappointed? Now, I could stand up here and encourage all of you to boycott Chick-fil-A. I am not going to do that today. But I am going to hopefully help you to walk away with a lesson. What happens when you fail, or you falter, in your deeply held convictions? Or what to do when someone close to you does this very thing that we're talking about? When they at one time had a deeply held conviction that they, were, uh, that they, they held to tightly, and all of a sudden somebody you care about is no longer doing what's right. How do we handle that, and what do we do with it? And that is where our scripture brings so much wisdom and understanding into our lives. And I want you to join me today in Luke chapter 17. Thank you for allowing me to get that off my chest. Very cathartic for me. Luke 17, verse 3, the words of Jesus Christ. He says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There is so much wisdom in one sentence from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read it one more time. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Let's pray. Father, we come by the blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together in your house. 
Lord, let us be people of conviction. Let us be people of character. Let us be people who hold true to what is right. And God, I pray, let us also be people of forgiveness as you are. Lord, you are a faithful God. And I pray for those who are even disappointed today in themselves and disappointed in others. God, give us the grace and the wisdom to move forward and to glorify you in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, Amen. This is a powerful lesson. I've titled this message, When You're Disappointed. Because the truth is in life that you will experience disappointment. There will be people that let you down. Everybody said amen. Your parents will let you down. Your siblings will let you down. Your pastor might even let you down. Your uh, children will let you down. Your boss will let you down. Your coworkers will let you down. You will have good and godly expectations of people, and they'll let you down. If we can learn one thing about human beings, is that <clears throat> it's easy for them to disappoint us. Even Adam and Eve in the garden, in a perfect environment, they disappointed God, didn't they? God gave them a reasonable expectation, not something that was far outside the realm of possibility. He simply said, you can have every fruit from every tree of the garden. But this tree over here, this is my tree, don't touch it, please. And even that simple expectation, humanity was unable to follow that commandment. And ever since that day, the fruit of that first sin, that first disobedience, that first disappointment, it has been released into the human sinful nature. And ever since then, we have been disappointing God and others. Might as well say amen. As a Christian, you know, we get saved, we come to an altar, and God forgives us of our sins, and it's an incredible thing, isn't it? But you'll learn pretty quickly, even as a Christian, you're going to experience disappointment. You're going to experience failures and setbacks. You're going to fall into temptations from time to time. You're going to lose those deeply held convictions that you had as a new Christian. And you're going to disappoint yourself. And you're going to disappoint God. It is not something that is encouraged. No, we do all that we can to lift one another up. But we have to deal with the reality that we will disappoint God and disappoint ourselves even as believers, even as brothers and sisters. Are you still with me? And that's where a scripture like this becomes so useful and helpful to the kingdom of God. So let's look at how Jesus handles those who disappoint him. The first phrase in our scripture, the first sentence is this. Take heed to yourselves. I want you to say it with me. Take heed to yourselves. Oh, our world would be a much better place if people would follow that advice. Your family would be a much better place if you would follow that advice. Take heed to yourselves. In other words, before we talk about dealing with somebody else, before we talk about pointing a finger at another person or an organization or a way of life, or another nation, before we talk about them, let's talk about us. This is healthy. This is spiritually necessary. Take heed 
for yourself. I looked up the word in the Greek. The word is prosecho. It's the same word where we get our English word prosecute. It's interesting. What does it mean when you prosecute someone? It means you're taking them to court. It's not something that you should be doing in a trivial way. Can we agree on that? If you've ever been to court, you've had to hire a lawyer, you know that it's expensive and difficult and it's stressful, right? And so when you prosecute someone, it is something that has to be done carefully, has to be done with great amount of care. Some other translations of this phrase, watch yourselves, pay attention, be on your guard, be careful. In the Greek, there's an image that comes along with this word. It comes from the days of navigating ships. If you are going to bring your ship in close to the shoreline, the word is literally connected with how a captain touches his ship to the ocean shore. In other words, he's not going to you know, come in at, at 20 knots and let the sand break his ship into pieces. He's going to bring that ship in with great ease and great care. And there's going to be people looking over the side to make sure there's nothing that's going to damage the ship. That's the word. Take heed of yourselves. Be careful before throwing accusations and slander at others. Jesus' first concern is to look at ourselves before we begin to judge others. That is so, so wise. If we would follow this advice, if we would be more concerned about our own failures and faults before we get involved with others, the world would be a much better place. And you would be a much healthier person. Take heed to yourself. I've had times in my life when I've seen people fail. I've seen people that I respect fall away from the faith. I've seen people that even I learned from, people that I cared about, people who were my superiors in the faith. I've seen them make incredibly horrible decisions. And you know, in those times, it's easy for us to say, how could they? How could they even consider that? It's easy for us to point a finger. Maybe it's just me. But the honest truth is, if we be honest for a moment, not one of us is very far away from bad decisions, are we? You are only one or two decisions away from destroying everything God has done in your life. You could could walk out of this church today and make a decision that that would... rip you, that it would abort your destiny with God. It would abort everything that God has done in your life. Every single one of us. That's why Jesus begins with this statement, be on your guard about your own life. We are all capable of great evil, and it is wise for us to remember that. Somebody say amen. Jesus is helping us to understand that we will never be any kind of good influence in our world or with others unless you first have some good influence 
over yourself. I often tell people as I counsel them, there is only one person on the entire planet that you have control over. Yourself. You cannot control the actions, words, or decisions of others. You can influence, you can pray, you can make suggestions, you can convict, you can rebuke, but listen, you cannot control. And the moment you begin to manipulate another person, you have entered into a sin of witchcraft and rebellion against God. There is only one person you can control. Listen, you be wise to listen to this. One person you can control in this life, that's you. And if you can't control your own self, you have no business controlling anybody else. Jesus makes this statement that has been twisted out of proportion over and over, especially in our generation. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, people use that scripture as a hammer. You don't judge me. You don't have any place to judge. You just let me do whatever I want to do, right? That's how people use it. Don't judge me. Only God is my judge. But that's because they haven't read the rest of the scripture. Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will also be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, Jesus is not saying to his followers that I never want you to judge anything in life. That would be foolishness. He's saying that you better be careful how you judge because the same way you judge others is the way that you'll be judged yourself. This is not a call to be separated from others and uninvolved from our community and our lives. It's exactly what Jesus said in our scripture. It says, take heed to yourself first and he gives an illustration of what this looks like why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank or the two by four in your own eye how can you say to your brother let me remove that little speck from your eye and look a two by four is hanging out of your face in other words jesus is saying it's a good thing to help your brother when he's got something stuck in his eye it's a good thing to notice when other... And listen, we are experts at finding the specks in other people's eyes, aren't we? We can, we, can, uh, we can find a speck from across the room. Hey, is that a speck in your eye? We are experts at seeing faults in others. But we are completely blind to our own faults and our own failures at the same time. And Jesus is saying... The same truth again and again is first, before we go into microsurgery trying to remove the little thing that's in your brother's eye, maybe you ought to take a look at that two by four that's stuck in your head. Maybe you ought to pay attention to your own faults and failures. Maybe we ought to take heed to ourselves. That is lesson number one. When you're disappointed, it is helpful for us to look at ourselves. And what that does is it helps us to gain a proper perspective. If somebody has failed you, somebody is disappointed, before you get all pearl clutchy, 
before you begin to hem and haw and get angry and let your, let your uh, forehead be turn red and sweat come out of your body, listen, before you do all that, say, you know, if I was in that situation, I wonder if I would have done that. I wonder if I would be capable of that. Maybe take it to the Lord in prayer and search your own heart and say, Lord, is it possible that even I could commit something like that? When we see Chick-fil-A waffling on their convictions, instead of, first of all, getting angry and posting, maybe we should say, are there any convictions that I've been breaking? Are there any things in my life that I used to believe with all my heart? Are there any habits that I rid myself of as a new convert, but now I've been dabbling again? Do you see how this is healthy? The scripture tells us to test yourself. Test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test your convictions. Before we begin to judge, it's helpful for us to judge ourselves. Paul, I wonder if you could turn off that fan, please. Let's look secondly, then, at the rebuke. So when we're disappointed, it is very helpful. Take heed to yourself. The next thing on the list, it gets even harder. (laughs) Jesus said in our scripture, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And some some people start saying, oh yeah, this is my chance. Now first of all, we have to notice about what Jesus says here. This is directed at brothers, siblings, at fellow believers in Christ. If your brother sins against you, a few things to notice here. First of all, it is possible for brothers to sin against you. It is possible for sisters to sin against you. And if you don't have that somewhere tucked in your mind, you're going to be greatly disappointed. And I've seen people leave churches. I've seen people leave ministries. I've seen people leave families. When a brother sins against you, say, how could it be possible? Well, guess what? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So if your brother sins against you, What do we do? The word that Jesus used is rebuke. Rebuke is an interesting idea in the scripture. Some people get the idea of a rebuke that it's like a a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps calling names, uh, getting, getting in your face. And certainly rebuke can take on that flavor, but The kind of biblical rebuke that Jesus is talking about always has an intended purpose. The rebuke that Jesus is talking about here is the same kind of rebuke that a loving parent would give to their child. A chastisement. Sometimes if your children are young, that chastisement is a physical chastisement, right? It's a rebuke that involves some swatting of the behind. There's power in correcting your children. When they get a little older, correction begins to change. Instead, it's a verbal rebuke. 
you've disappointed me. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. And what's interesting to me is that this rebuke, Jesus doesn't, uh, it, he, he, he's drawing a contrast here from what we normally try to do when somebody sins against us. Jesus did not say, if your brother sins against you, slander him behind his back. You know what they did to me. That's usually what we start with. We start talking to other people about what happened. Jesus did not say, if your brother sins against you, then be passive-aggressive. Try to drop hints. No. If your brother sins against you, then you better try to manipulate your way out, out of it. Or if your brother sins against you, then seek revenge. No, none of those things. The tool that Jesus puts into our tool belt to deal with a sinning brother or sister is a rebuke. And that's very hard for us sometimes because that requires a confrontation. How many here, you're scared of confrontations? You don't have to lift up your hand. (laughs) Confrontation can be a difficult thing. You have to look somebody in, in the eye. That's why the social media generation, we don't know how to handle these things very well, right? We'd rather send a text message. You hurt my feelings. That's not what a rebuke is, though. A rebuke is a tender and loving correction. It has to be done face to face. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Don't talk about him behind his back. Don't slander, don't manipulate, don't seek revenge. Because if you do all of those things, you know what? You're making it worse. The first thing that I did when I heard about Chick-fil-A's decision is I got in touch with their customer service. I said, you've offended me. I stood up for you. I gave you hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars over the last seven years because I thought you were standing up for family values. I went directly to them. Before I put together a sermon about it, I went directly to the source. I wrote a letter to the person who had made this bad decision in the Chick-fil-A upper management. Rebuke is a tricky thing. Rebuke is something that must be done in the right spirit. It is possible to do the right thing with the wrong attitude. How many know that's true? It's just like a parent. If you correct your child and you're all filled with rage and your eyes are bloodshot, and you're trying to spank your child. No, no, no. You're doing abuse. We should call the police on you. A a, a correction ought to be done with a cool head, with a calm manner. This is just the result of your actions. It's a consequence. But we let it become emotional, don't we? A rebuke in the same way cannot be led by our emotions. If we have been offended by a brother or if we have been offended by our own problems, by our own failures, it doesn't help to get emotional, but it does help to rebuke. There are several places in the Psalms where David speaks to himself, and it's got the language of rebuke. David says through the Psalms, he says, I said to myself, O my soul, why art thou cast down? Why are you so sad and sullen, speaking to himself in the mirror? You know, sometimes it's helpful. You've got to speak out some words to yourself. 
And you know why? Because if you don't rebuke yourself, then somebody else has to do it. And that takes time. That's why it's helpful for you to rebuke yourself first. Why are you feeling so pitiful? Why, do you, why, why are you sullen and, and, and sad? Why are you continuing to be rebellious? You know, it's a lot easier for you to rebuke yourself before someone else has to. But when we don't do that, it falls upon the shoulders of us as God's people in the right way, in the right season, in the right time, in the right attitude, in the right spirit to lovingly provide rebuke with brothers and sisters who are in sin. And it's okay. That's what the church is for. That's what the church needs more of, not less of. I'm not talking about, you know, looking down your nose at people. I'm not talking about being this holier than thou. I'm not talking about being a, you know, being a jerk to people. Because some of you will hear this sermon and say, yes, pastor told me to be a jerk. And this is why so many people don't come to church, because someone has been a jerk to them. But a loving rebuke draws people closer to God, not further away. Let's close and talk about conditional forgiveness. Conditional forgiveness. Because this is exactly what Jesus prescribed for a sinning brother. Once again, our scriptures, Luke 17, verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Communicate it. Make sure he knows. And if he repents, everybody say the word if. If If he repents, forgive him. That's a big if, isn't it? There is forgiveness available if he repents. We call that conditional forgiveness. Now, some people uh, so, some people believe that God offers unconditional forgiveness, but I don't see that in the Word of God. I don't see that God forgives everyone. I see that forgiveness is available for everyone. The blood of Jesus was shed for every man, woman, boy, and girl, but I don't see that everyone is forgiven. Do you know why? Because God believes in conditional forgiveness. Let me prove this to you from the Word of God. Again and again, God has forgiveness available for sinners, but forgiveness is not given to all. Repentance is required. Leviticus 26, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and... I just want you to notice how many ifs are in the Bible. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then... I will remember my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac. My covenant with Abraham, I will remember, and I will remember the land. This is what they call an if-then statement. It's a logical conclusion. If they repent, if they remember, if they confess, then there is forgiveness. I will show compassion. 
again and again throughout the Word of God. Second Chronicles 6, 37. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and they repent, they make supplication, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong and committed wickedness. When they return with all their heart and their soul in the land of captivity, when they do all these things, then I will forgive. Psalm 32, David's prayer to the Lord, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. See, this is simple. So simple. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. Somebody needed to hear that today. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. This is conditional forgiveness. Forgiveness available to all, but conditioned upon a response from us. Okay, pastor, but that's all Old Testament. Proverbs, Psalms, Second Chronicles, Leviticus. There can't be anything like that in the New Testament. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. That's an if. It didn't say if we go to church, he is faithful and just. Or if we get religious feelings in our brains. Or if we open a Bible once a year. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Jesus, later in the same chapter, verse 4 of Luke 17 If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, then you shall forgive him. So a couple things to learn as we close. Forgiveness must be available to all who have sinned against us. This is a hard thing for us sometimes. It's a hard thing because... We are people programmed for justice. When we see justice take place, we rejoice. Isn't that true? When you see the bad guy get what's coming to him, something in us says, yes! And when we see the good guy get a good reward for the good thing that he did, we say, yes, that's right. We are programmed for justice. And when there is injustice in our lives, when there is injustice internally in our hearts, when we know we've done wrong, and, and, and we're, we didn't get punished for it. There's something. It doesn't work out right in our brains. This is why people punish themselves with addiction. This is why people get tattoos and piercings and harm themselves. Is because somewhere deep down they know that they deserve some form of punishment. And when we see injustice, when a brother sins against us and they, they got off, nobody knows. They didn't pay a price. We desire, we long for justice. We want a pound of flesh. We want revenge. And that is a righteous desire for revenge. The problem is that revenge doesn't belong to us. And when we try to execute justice in our own strength, it only destroys us even worse. That's why God tells us 
to have forgiveness available. Do you know why we can do that? Because we are people who have received forgiveness. More than we can ever imagine. Because we are people who have received more forgiveness than we could ever conceive of. Because no matter how much you think of all the sins that you've committed, there are still more yet uncovered that God has graciously poured out His forgiveness on your life. Because when you didn't deserve it, you confessed your sins before a holy God and He chose to forgive you. He didn't have to, but He did. And because of that forgiveness, then now we as believers, we as brothers and sisters of sinning brothers and sisters, we have to express that same forgiveness toward others. We have to have it available. We have to have a bank account stored up somewhere in your soul, a bank account of forgiveness, ready to, do, ready to withdraw. Do you have that today? You say, Pastor, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know the kind of sins that they committed against me. Well, you know what might help is to understand that forgiveness is something not automatically given. It is conditionally given. As I just read in all of these scriptures, God does not command you to forgive automatically, but to have forgiveness available at the moment of repentance. Our scripture again, oh, so much wisdom in just a short scripture. In Luke 17, 3, take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There must be repentance. If you are the sinning party, you must be willing to repent. To admit your wrong. Not to say, I'm sorry that you were offended by my actions. That's fake forget. That's fake repentance. I'm sorry about the way you feel about what I did. That's fake forgiveness. That's pride that won't admit that you're wrong. This happens in marriage between husbands and wives. You know, husbands and wives can act like jerks to each other. I'm amazed that people can come to church and you would never talk bad about anyone else. But the moment you get home with the person you love the most, you act like a jerk toward them. Act like a Christian around everybody else except the one who is committed to you for the rest of their life understand that if there's anyone you should act kind toward act like a christian it's your own husband or your wife and what happens is we offend one another we hurt each other's feelings as a husband or as a wife and then we say well i'm sorry that you feel like that i'm sorry that you are the problem and not me because i'm not going to change that's just stinking pride isn't it but repentance is willing to admit our faults. Confession. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And when repentance takes place, repentance must be met with a withdrawal of forgiveness. God did not withhold his forgiveness from us, nor should we withhold our forgiveness when others are repenting. And so it is this morning, a great lesson to learn when you are disappointed, when you're holding on 
to a grudge, when people have sinned against you, or when you've sinned against yourself. Three powerful lessons. Take heed to yourself. Take heed to yourself. Rebuke a sinning party. It must be communicated the right way in the right time. And when if, if he repents, forgive him. Powerful truths from the word of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. As we bring this service to a close. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vvph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people. Oh